1: d found no proscinium the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host Noah Nelson, and welcome to episode four o seven. This week on the show, we're joined by Terry Pettigrew Rollup and Tommy Wallach, the owners of Hatch Escapes and the creators of Labrat here in Los Angeles, the boxed puzzle story experience Mother of Frankenstein, which you can order or find in, I think it's in Targets, and the long anticipated The Ladder also here in L.A., and on the set of which we spoke with the pair. This is a thought-provoking conversation with two of the most detail-oriented and story-driven people in the escape game world. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to be challenged by it. Much like (laughs) I was challenged by the puzzles in Mother of Frankenstein. (gasps) Before we get into it, a little housekeeping. It was a light week for pu- light week for publishing with the shortened week here in the States and no material for the rundown and also because of some stuff that I'll, I'll talk to you about after the interview. Yet that doesn't stop us cold. Oh, no, n- nothing stops us. Everything Immersive this week is currently ping-ponging around LinkedIn and will very likely be on Everything Immersive itself by the time you hear this. Although, although some of you will get to this faster than I get to that, you know who you are, Catherine. Uh, (laughs) And we also fired up the September call sheet feature. That and there's a whole lot of new events you can discover by searching Everything Immersive itself. Everythingimmersive.com is there for you to search and get ahead of the newsletter, get ahead of our socials use it. It's your ally. It's your friend. We, we made a website. So when you said like, Hey, I want to do something this weekend or like questions like I'm going to be in, in New York in December, what's going on? Which people like send me via Facebook all the time. And I'm like, Oh man, I built a website. Go, go to my website. That's what the website's for. Check that first and then come to me. It'll probably have the better answer than I do. All right. Now remember if you're producing an event, you can post to EI directly, okay? You can use, spin up a free account, create an, create a, a, an organizer profile for your company, or if, you, if you're if you doing this for a bunch of companies, if you manage a bunch of them, if you're a PR person, you can, you can do it that way. We built that way. Uh, and from there, when you put the post up and it gets approved, it'll be up for consideration for the newsletters and our social media feeds. Now... If you're a fan and there's something you found in the world that you can't find on EI, like, you know, there, you, there's this cool escape room by you or like, oh, my favorite company is doing a show or like all I listen to the podcast in Peoria and we finally have something this year. But like you guys don't know about it. And then you search EI and like, yeah, they don't know about it. Uh, one, you can always go to uh, the people who make the thing and say like, hey, you should go post on on this thing, Everything Immersive, because I think it'll help people find you know, there's this community, uh, that, that is good. Uh, the other thing, uh, is you can always email us at, drop us a tip at pitches at no and we'll forward it to our volunteer curator team. That email address is also how creators can request reviews. However, if you send us a press release into it, we will go tell you to post it on EI One of the reasons why we have EI is because we get so many press releases that if all we did was process press releases like we used to, process press releases and put them on no proscenium, if all we did was that, we would never do anything else. We would literally have no time to do anything else. So everythingimmersive.com, it is your friend, it is your ally, it is your tool. And honestly, uh, we should be doing more with it. So (laughs) we're going to be doing more with it. All right. Now, none of this would be happening without our incredible Patreon backers. Truly incredible. This week, we have a few more who have answered our call. Emma Sheridan, Kelly, and Novi-san. I'm happy to announce that we have hit our first milestone on our current campaign to get up to 450 backers. As of this moment, we are at 426 backers, which means we're looking for 24 more backers at the $5 level to build in the sustainability we need as we meet the challenges of the current era. Challenges that are even tougher than what you'll find in Mother of Frankenstein. Look, I know a lot of you are already backers. You've gone to patreon.com slash and shown your support. You've linked your Patreon to the Discord and drop in from time to time to connect with other members of the community. The biggest help you can provide is helping us spread the word. Share everything immersive this week on LinkedIn. Drop the call sheet on Facebook. We just, we got the call sheet up this week. Comment on our Instagram. Pretend to like us at prom. Wait, what? Prom's not till later. It's homecoming season. Who wrote this? Look, if everyone who listened to the podcast on the regular shared one article each week, we could trick CNN into thinking we are a viable candidate for 2024. Again! Who is writing this? Just I don't know. Just just drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or something. Every little thing helps. We are always no Proscenium except on Insta and on Threads, which technically we are still on, but I'm just ignoring it these days because I'm now a Blue Sky addict, which is like you know, it's like it's like hipster social media addict. Wow. So me uh, <laughs> on Threads where we are no underscore Proscenium. We we are on we are on Blue Sky. You can be on Blue Sky too if you want. Ask me about it. I know ways as always big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Bullett, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, who's on a galaxy? Probably, uh, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie on Lekker LaCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And hey, Look, we're always on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our very special backers. Hit me up at Noah at for details. Or if you want to sponsor the show, sponsor some special initiatives we have a cook in, hit me up there too. Uh, we live in a society where money makes the world go round. Do I like it? No. Uh, do we need it? Yes. That's it. Let's get on with this show talk to you on the other side this week we are coming to you from hatch escapes in los angeles where we are joined by terry pettigrew rollup and tommy wallach Founders of the company and the creators of the award winning Lab Rat, the recently published three volume immersive tabletop experience Mother of Frankenstein, and the long anticipated game The Ladder, where we are currently sitting inside one of its stunning, fully armed, and operational rooms. Terry, Tommy, thank you for talking with us on the deck of The Ladder while you're here in the home stretch of the build. Huge pleasure. Yes, thank you. This this I I got to see you. Uh, Room escape artist was in town. Do they often do meetups here in your lobby? And I got to come through this space. What a maybe two years ago now. <sighs> I can't I, time. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what it is anymore. <laughs> uh, and and there's there's some bits and pieces in that were already like fully operational that were just absolutely stunning. And to just watch to see how far along. This thing has come this this is a very special space you guys are building out
2: here so. thank you it has been a labor of love and many many years <laughs> yeah
1: before we get too far into this space or mother of frankenstein for that matter i'm hoping you can give us the hatch origin story because i've been coming to this building since 2017 when rogue Artists ensemble did Kaiden project walls grow thin uh, somewhere above us at the moment, same place where
2: uh, Nest is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, so that was the first time I, I came down here hunting something immersive, and I was that
2: was Labrat in at that point. Labrat was in build, in so build. they opened just a little bit before we we finally opened. Actually, that's not true. They opened the the Halloween before we opened, and we opened in the spring, so so six months before. So, so what what's the
1: origin story here? Because this this was. It maybe still is to some degree uh, one of those tall storage buildings from like the classic era of storage buildings in Los Angeles.
2: So what what is this place? How do you have it? What's the story? <laughs> so this is a 1927 converted moving and storage warehouse. Uh, back in the 20s, this would have been a very nice part of town. It's not a very nice part of town anymore. Uh, but uh, there are some
1: nice houses around there here. Certainly so, are. Yeah.
2: But but, you know, before they built the 10 freeway right through the middle of West Adams, this was the fancy part of town. And so this was a storage warehouse where the ladies would store their furs in the winter. So the uh, the storage vaults up there on the fifth floor where the nest is, those are fur storage vaults. Whoa. And my family came into it in the 1960s. I am a third generation moving in storage person. <laughs> <laughs> I, ran, <laughs> I ran the family business for about a decade uh, before... Deciding that I needed to pursue my creative interests (laughs) and uh, and coming over to do Hatch full time, Uh, sure. Uh, But as far as the uh, the origin story, do you want to hit us?
0: Sure. Um, You know Terry and and I, and that was was Terry, by the way. Yes, this is Tommy. Now, Um, Terry and I met when I was sixteen and he was seventeen. We were both high schoolers uh, interested in writing for musical theater, and we met at an NYU summer program for burgeoning musical theater writers.
2: Which is insane that that existed.
0: Yeah, crazy (laughs) thought. Um, And have been friends ever since, so for more than well over two decades at this point. Um, I was visiting LA. Terry had moved back here to take over the family business. And both of us are kind of inveterate gamers, uh, video games, tabletop games, and I had heard about escape rooms. And I kind of said, hey, there's this new thing that I've heard of. I haven't done it yet. Terry said that sounds kind of dumb. I was like, yeah, Yeah, I really did not want to go. (laughs) Oh, the irony. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we went to just sort of picked one out of the proverbial hat. It was a Fox and a Fox in the box. Fox in the box. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. The, The location that used to exist up on Hollywood
0: Boulevard. Um, and we played it and walked out of it and Terry genuinely turned to me and said, well, that's what I'm doing with the rest of my life. Oh, wow. Um,
1: what, what, what was it that, that put you
2: over?
0: I felt like I could see
2: that there was this brand new storytelling vehicle, this uh, this new genre of story that no one had quite realized was a storytelling vehicle yet. Mm. And I was obsessed with, could we figure out the mechanics to tell real interesting good stories through this medium, this medium where essentially the the protagonist shows up without ever ever having read a script or gone to a rehearsal and stars in a play or a movie depending on how you, on how you look at it and uh, and the room responds to them and helps to tell a story with you the player who is also the main character i was fascinated and i you know i ever since i've been trying to figure out how to tell more interesting and better stories through the medium
1: do, do you think here in LA you know we're one we're blessed i think with like maybe more escape games like you know than than anywhere else as a region, maybe not per capita because of how many people we have, but like definitely from the the dawn in about 2015 when it was just like the maze rooms and the basement and you know trapped in a room with a zombie. I think those are the three things that were going on <laughs> mm-hmm. to like now, you know've we've, we've been lucky that there's a lot of people from the creative industries who like sort of see what you see in it. But do you think that we, that, uh, that we have a lot of rooms that kind of hit that standard or... Not here. Or, yeah,
2: not here. You know, more so in Europe. And I've, mm. I've traveled pretty extensively there and they're a bit ahead of us on this particular curve. Um, and there are definitely some fantastic rooms in the States that are, you know, knocking out of the park in terms of telling more interesting stories. But you don't have a ton here in LA. A handful that are, you know, worth mentioning and worth visiting, but not a ton. Yeah. despite the fact that there are probably 200 escape room venues in Southern California, you know, but the vast majority of them are doing essentially old school escape rooms, a setup, you know, a, a theme, and then some puzzles loosely related to that theme uh, with some kind of a, you did it at the end, not, not a true story.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it as a storytelling meeting medium because uh, my next planned question is just to note that there's something cinematic about this space That we're in right now and and you know it it feels like a set i nearly called it a set but it is you know it it is a a room and there's also something almost obsessively detailed about the elements in mother of frankenstein like the actual physical elements that are inside the box (laughs) um what are you chasing with this attention to detail because story is one thing Mm -hmm. your narrative is one thing but this kind of all-encompassing, like I don't want to spoil some of the the features, but there's there's details. I'm to, for their sake, I'm gonna to point to certain things. There, there's details on the walls here that sort of fractally encompass the narrative, mm-hmm. right? Like, what are you after going that far? <laughs> it could be so much easier to just trap someone in a room with a zombie. It's tra- still a for good, example. Scary question. I yeah.
2: mean, <laughs> I don't have a great answer for it other than I'm crazy. <laughs> you know, it's so much worse than you know.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm seeing a lot in here and yeah. it's pretty bad.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've got people that rein me in. Uh Tommy being, being one of them. You know, I only know how to do things all the way. Mm. And if I ever make anything good, it's only because I've spent Dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of hours going down all the pathways. I, 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 I just—that's kind of the way that I work. So, for example, you know, in this uh, this escape room, the ladder takes place in a company over five decades, and we know exactly which employees are working in exactly which roles in every single decade, and we have, you know, we have charted out. The, uh, the entire floor plan of the building. And, uh, you know, we, we I think we build outward from that level of detail in order to create a space that feels lived in and real and vibrant.
0: Just to clarify uh, factually what Terry means there, in this game, you play one employee and there's there are only other, three other characters that you interact with, um, two of whom work at the company. However we have on our Google Drive the entire company directory of this company. So dozens and dozens of other people and the roles they have in the company and where their office is in a fully designed 3D building. Even though you are not moving through a fully designed 3D building, you're moving through a storage facility in Los Angeles. But um, we are aware of all of that because when you are aware of all of that, it informs some of the things you do. So some of the puzzles we have, for example, are actually predicated on us knowing the full three-dimensional layout of this fictional building in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, There's a game of Guess Who uh, in the next room over in the 1970s where you have the entire company directory in front of you with named characters. Um, those characters are also referenced in phone calls on the switchboard that you're seeing in this room. Uh, Individual employees are actually calling other individual employees and they say, hi, it's Rick working on the third floor and I'm looking for... It's that level. Um, And again, in terms of the reason, there's an... Even when I pull Terry back, because Terry is more uh, hyperbolic in this regard than I am, I certainly agree with him that there is something uh, that people understand is happening, even if they couldn't name it. It's a part of immersion. Mm.
2: I think it has to do with that. I think it's something to do with being a host and something also to do with the kind of experience we're trying to give people. And what I mean by that is when someone comes into an experience I've designed, I really want them to feel incredibly well taken care of. I want them to feel like I have taken care of every single detail for them so that they can let go and just be in the story. You know, to me it's about dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's so that nobody can look anywhere and not be engaging with the story. There's no room for distraction. There's no there's no need to
0: suspend disbelief because there's nothing not to believe. It's all here. Mm. And that's kind of. We're at an enormous deficit in this medium versus almost every other medium uh, in different ways. Um, the suspension of disbelief in any sort of meat space event is extraordinarily difficult to achieve. And it's, I think, one of the major difficulties of a lot of immersive theater that have you engaging with actors. I- I'm someone, for example, who I cannot suspend disbelief with actors in an immersive space. Can't do it. I just know their actors. I'm thinking about their actorly life. I'm thinking about their auditions. I'm thinking about what they're getting paid. It's hugely distracting for me. It's one of the reasons we don't use live actors here. We use filmed actors. Um, but I, I think we're always at that deficit. And one of the ways to attempt to overcome it, as Terry just said, is you, you have to not give people any outs, like anywhere where they look and, and see something where it's like, oh, okay, right. I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in a storage building in Los Angeles. Part of the thing of this room is we're, there are no hints in this room. It's hard to explain quite how that works, but there are no hints, not in any form. No voice, no audio, no text. Um, part of the reason for that is, man, hints destroy everything you're trying to do. Uh, they, you Because know, who's giving you a hint? It's the game master sitting out there watching you on a camera, and suddenly you're not in the space anymore. You know, So everything we're doing is trying to get across uh, to achieve suspension of disbelief. <laughs>
1: As you've as you've tested some of these the parts of this, how how you're approaching a, a hintless room then? Because I think it can be it, on the level of immersion, right? Like I know as a player, um, and I'm definitely someone who doesn't have like the the actor problem, but like as a player, I too find the idea that like I can push a button or someone can come over a god mic and be like, "Oh, try the red one," and and suddenly I'm not in the story anymore, whatever. Whatever, allowing myself to get caught up in it, it's like ah, meta mechanical layer, right? Mm-hmm, and yeah. then maybe I can get lulled back into like focusing on the vibes of the story. But there's also times when you just kind of run right up against something and just like, oh, I don't even know where to. Right. Well, start. And that, that's
2: a you know a design challenge that we're trying to to master in this experience. Uh, the way that we have this this particular experience set up. There will never be a moment when you won't have dozens of things that you could be doing. Mm. There is so much content in each of these spaces and the vast majority of it is not predicated on you being able to solve puzzles. Believe it or not in the latter the puzzles the traditional escape room puzzles are entirely optional. They are used to gate additional parts of the story. So the more puzzles you solve the more uh, story beats you get access to but you could come through this room and never solve a single puzzle, and we hope, still have a blast.
1: I really love that. It it actually reminds me, you know, having gone to uh, the Ministry of Peculiarities out in Azusa, Mm -hmm. so far away. Um, (laughs) That's kind of a joke, but also not. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Because it's here in Southern California. one of the things i love there is that it it ceases to feel like an escape room as you get further and further into the experience and just feels like a mystery you're you're solving particularly because by the end you just have a set amount of time you're going to be there for as long as you're going to be there you're going to solve as much as you're going to solve and your reward is not escaping or winning your reward is how many mysteries did you solve Mm -hmm. how much story did you unlock before moving on mm-hmm. uh, afterwards and that that's that only kind of happens in the last section of that mm-hmm. but i loved that that's where we where we land in that space right. and and that feels like a that started to feel like a movement towards what this entertainment this art form in in this particular like the room format could be and a year that essentially you know, it's not like you're trying to beat the room. It's that you're trying to learn things or you're getting the story out of experiencing what's going on in it. Well, if you
0: think about video games and and we think about video games a lot, um, you know, the average, there are lots of exceptions to this, but Mm -hmm. kind of the most successful games tend to have uh, puzzles somewhere in them. The puzzles actually do tend to be optional unless they're really stupid Um, and most video games are just predicated on really stupid puzzles, like things that any, like a, you know, eight year old coming at the game can solve in a few minutes, you know? Um, but what they have that escape rooms have struggled with and immersive theater in general has struggled with is activity. Mm. In most games, that activity is combat. It's combat. It's fighting things, beating things up. Usually there are other things It could be racing. It could be, you know, driving around in GTA or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But you actually spend most of your time doing that activity. Mm. Then there are some cool secret puzzles if you're into that kind of thing. And all of it's working together towards the story. That's the goal in here. So the main thing you're doing in each of these rooms is activities. It's scored games. Each of those games is puzzle adjacent, but they're not the kind of puzzles you get stuck on, uh, if, if you know what I mean. They're uh, oh. they're activity-based. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the goal, is that you can just do that fun stuff and everyone will have a great time just doing the fun stuff. Like, like the room next door has skee-ball golf. That's one of the most kind of physical examples. Some of it's a little more interesting than that, but it's skee-ball golf. Uh, It's part of the story because you're in middle management, so you spend a lot of time (laughs) on the links, uh, you know, with clients. It's what you do. Um, But that's a game where when you go in there, if you're an older person who doesn't love the escape room puzzle situation, you know, you can really happily just play some golf in there. And maybe some of the people in the group will try to solve some of those tricky optional puzzles, but it's all there for you.
2: Yeah. I've and learned. to be clear, we are not anti-puzzle. We love a good puzzle. We oh, There, I there are probably a hundred <laughs> puzzles in the ladder. you know, yeah. uh, when you count them all out. It's just that we're trying, we're really trying to break this form open. and And we're just, we're probing it from all sides, trying to find the best way to tell the most interesting stories. And puzzles are hard because, <laughs> you know, in order to really use puzzles in storytelling, they sorta kinda need to be diegetic. They kinda need to make sense within the world and the story that you're telling, but you know, there are only a handful of narratives where it makes sense for you to actually be solving puzzles. Generally, it's because you're being tested, you know, and there are only so so many ways to hang a narrative on some kind of a test, right? So we, we are constantly looking for other ways to get people to play in story and puzzle a great one but we don't think it's the only one. Mm-hmm.
1: Well that 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 idea of diegetic puzzles and getting puzzles to advance story I think that that moves quite nicely into the mother of frankenstein territory. Nice Woo! <laughs> um, and and you, know, you Tommy you've had you've had another career as a as a YA novelist and this is a this is a very text driven prose driven <laughs> uh married with puzzles experience at least that's what's that's what's manifested in the in the first volume of it and there's there's three volumes and it is <laughs> mm-hmm. it is extensive uh there is there's is a lot of material here what what do you, on this idea of diegetic puzzles and, and and marrying puzzles to story you know maybe first like chicken the egg
2: which came first the puzzles of the story with the mother of frankenstein
0: yeah, I'll start. I mean, we both have a lot to say. Well, we, wanna... we might
2: want to go back and start with LabRed, actually, because, you know, when we first started Hatch, we, we, we started with four scripts, mm. of four potential rooms that we were going to build. Uh, two, we each took the lead on two of them, but, but Tommy and I absolutely write all of each other's work, and they were absolutely cl- collaborative. And the one that was the most diegetic by far was lab rat.
0: It was yours. It was a good one. Yeah, well, and that's and and,
2: <laughs> and and the reason I think we went with it is because it was indeed uh, a scenario where doing puzzles made sense, right? The setup is that there's this rat who is studying humans. He's working on his uh, his doctoral thesis and he needs you to solve puzzles because he's studying human intelligence. It's a stupid, stupid idea, but it allows everything you're doing in that escape, very escape room, escape room to actually fit within the larger narrative. And uh, when we started Mother of Frankenstein, we weren't entirely sure if we were going to be aiming for diegetic puzzles or not. And I think we actually ended up going quite a bit in the extreme in that direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it became increasingly important to both of us, and, and Terry was really the voice, I think, always pushing it harder and harder, and I'm, I'm so glad for that. Um, you know, We talk about two things a lot, and I want to make sure to separate them. This is like getting in the in the terminology weeds, but it's really important. Well, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so diegesis is, is one thing, and again, I assume everybody at this point knows what that means. So basically, does it make sense why you're solving puzzles? Are the puzzles part of the story? So the first question for us was, okay, we wanted to tell an emotional story, which is not what Labrat does, to be clear. It's not what Ladder does either, but we wanted to do it with this. And so the question was, okay, what can we do to get this medium there that has basically never gotten there? I would say the only one you could maybe point to is is Rita Orlov is doing some stuff. like I think Light in the Mist approaches some, some genuine like human emotion. Um, but it's really really hard most games do not attempt it because of how hard it is yeah
2: and in the escape space one has to shout out uh man from beyond uh, the strange bird production which is a marvelous work of emotional uh honesty
0: right yeah and still potentially almost the only might be the only one Mm -hmm. in, in america at least that's doing it um there are a few ways we went about doing it so using mary shelley so using real people which means that the player is already invested in the characters. You don't have to onboard them with some new person that they don't understand. Um, so, so history helped. We came up with a diegetic conceit. In short, Mary Shelley created this game not for the player because you can't create emotion with the player. The player is not part of the narrative. It makes very little sense. And, and every other game I know of has that problem. They try to make the player a logical person in the story. Mm. Tough. We didn't do that. You are just a human being who happened to get this thing. It was not ever intended for you. It's written from Mary Shelley to her son, uh, who we call Florence. His name was actually also Percy Shelley, but that would have been confusing. (laughs) Um, His middle name was Florence. Uh, So she made this game for her son. And she put puzzles in there because she needs to tell him her whole life story. Because there's a secret she wants to tell him. And uh, a, a plot based but also very emotional thing that she could not bring herself to tell him while she was alive so she left this behind and the reason why there are puzzles is he's uh she's just taking him through her biography but to make sure that he's paying attention more or less that he's getting what she's laying down There's sort of check-ins and the puzzles are check-ins like are you following what happened to me and she even goes out of her way at the beginning to say you don't need to do these you could just go to the end and read the ending but as your mother i'm asking you please Take your time with this.
2: Yeah, and what we started to discover, so so in volume one, it's very much that. But as the story progressed and as we moved into volume two and three, we started to realize that there not only would the puzzles serve as check-ins, as as ways to mark, you know, your knowledge of of what's going on in the story, they started to become the story itself. Like the action of solving a puzzle. We found ways to make that action of solving a puzzle the actual dramatic action of the story. Mm.
0: And yeah, and that was the other terminology thing, uh, at least I throw around a lot, um, which is uh, ludonarrative consonants. People talk about the dissonance side of it a lot, if you know video games famously. but, a lot, a lot of
1: like, you know, classic example is, you know, say what, you know, Grand Theft Auto for, I think it was for where you're, you're run, you know, your characters saying like, oh, I feel like you're really, yeah, I want to get out of this gangster life. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. And you're constantly slamming your car around and just like massacring like tons and tons of people. So like this, this the game is the story is telling you one thing. The game is encouraging you to go in a completely different way. And then you just have to, to create consonants. You have to decide that that character is fully psychotic right. and has had a full break. And, and then you, that's how you play the game.
0: Exactly. It's it's a real problem in video games because basically the only logical consonant uh, theme for a video game is indiscriminate slaughter yeah. <laughs> and your guilt around it. Yeah. It's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what Terry's talking about is, is ludonarrative consonants here and that was actually much, much harder. Diegesis is a one-off thing. You figure yeah. it out. Like, oh, Mary Shelley made it for her son, and that's what Done. Ludo-narrative consonants is why it took three years. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. basically means that every puzzle is at the very least gesturally uh, embodying that exact moment in the narrative. Mm-hmm. So like our favorite example, um, I mean, there's so many, that's the whole game. But in volume two, uh, it's where the the game starts to diverge from Mary's actual biography. Um, it becomes speculative and fictional. In our game, she studied anatomy under this guy named Conrad Dipple, who was an alchemist. Uh, Dippel really lived in Castle Frankenstein. That's a real historical fact. And Mary Shelley did boat past Castle Frankenstein at one point in her <laughs> life, but she did not stop in. In ours, she stops in, and she ends up studying anatomy and galvanism under this man to kind of inspire Frankenstein later. Um, And there's a journal, a research journal. And I don't know, you want to describe that experience?
2: So the research journal is the story of her trying to discover how to bring creatures back to life using electricity. And it is very much a scientific research journal in that she is experimenting, she's trying things. She doesn't really know uh, where she's going, but she's got certain avenues that she's going to go down. And it's structured in such a way that as she is trying to figure stuff out, you are right alongside her figuring it out as well. Mm. So, that, so she has set you up and, and you know, she's, she's created the, the format that allows this to happen, but you are now doing the science that she would have been doing, right? And I, I think we're really proud of, of figuring out a way to do that.
0: Yeah, it makes us laugh a little bit, you know, e- during playtesting, we got the complaint sometimes where by the end of that sequence, the sort of final puzzle, it iterates, right? It's a, it's a single kind of iterating experience, which is meant to mimic scientific inquiry. And we did have people complain at the end, like, man, by the time that fifth puzzle came along, I was just like done with this. A, a genuine complaint. The thing is for Terry and I, we, we laugh because that's exactly what we wanted people to feel, yeah. because we are trying to mimic the experience of scientific inquiry, which is repetitive, and it it requires real work. We wanted people to feel that they were doing real scientific work. Again, that's not for everybody, but that's the kind of thing, to your point, wasn't accidental. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug.
2: And the other thing about, you know, trying to replicate scientific inquiry as a s- series of puzzles is, you know, science is not a straight road. It's not... It's not, like a, it's not linear. You have to try multiple avenues and, and develop various skills and, and learn certain things that work and certain things that don't. So by the time you do get to that final fifth puzzle where you're using all the things that you've learned so far, there are hundreds of ways you could solve it. And, and, I, and that, that delights me. That delights me that you're, you're using you know, the, the, the things you've learned of that experience to come at it in a way that is entirely your own. Much as a, as a, any scientist would.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite moments was uh, I think it was when Craig Mason play tested. when someone play tested, they got to that final puzzle and they said it took them over an hour. Um, and when Terry first gave that one to me because because that was really Terry's baby, um, I actually do you remember this? I, do. I, I wrote you and I said this it can't end like this. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, that took like three minutes and this is the finale of the journal. And it was it was only because I had it in my bones a little bit because we'd been working on it in some way, shape, or form for months. But I just organized my data like a scientist, and I'm, I'm not kidding about that. Yeah. And it took like five minutes. Yeah. Mm. If you don't do that, it can take an hour, and that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That yeah, it was really cool. I was like, oh, that means this is right. This is good.
1: Interesting. I have. I will. I will come to the fact that I haven't gotten that far. But now I'm like curious to see. One, how long it it'll take me, <laughs> uh, but but also, little because that, that's a that's a that's not just a tightrope. That feels like a, a razor blade to walk though. Because like you've got this, you're 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 trying to make it the thing itself, mm-hmm. right? And and I feel there's nothing nobler than trying to make something the thing itself. Right. And and yet because the thing itself can be intensely frustrating if it's not in your bones, mm-hmm. then you you also kind of run that risk
2: of of. Just getting people shook yeah but you know the, the thing that i one of the things i'm excited about with mother of frankenstein is that because it is it's first it is first a story it is first narrative right and that's the most important thing and so if you are actively engaging with the story if you're really in it with mary you're not you're not going to be frustrated more and more than that we don't use the freaking hints <laughs> you know like if you're if you're actually frustrated that's what the hints are for yeah. right because we that's and not the hints we... are good
1: and the hints and and I and I will like you know I I we we did it as a group uh, a couple of packets in in episode uh, in in volume one and I, I tackled the last packet by myself and, and uh, we, we took it in it and we took it what I consider out of order. Uh, <laughs> so I wound up on poetry. It was like the last thing and that mm-hmm. poetry, the first part of poetry is actually kind of really easy. And then it gets a little harder as you go, <laughs> yeah. but it builds up that confidence. You're like, Oh, I get, I get the, Oh, now there's more. Okay. Now I got to look a little closer. Okay. Okay. Now I'm looking closer. I'm starting to get it. And like, and, and then more iterations, more iterations before you move into like, you know, the, the the culmination of, yeah. of, of that which I'll, I'll I'll leave out what that is. but like at, at a certain point I was like, okay, I'm a little tired. Uh, and I I gained I lost nothing I felt by leaning in the hint system because yeah. I got to still see the elegance of the narrative as it's married to the puzzles. Yeah. Right, and that I feel that might even be a, a harder line to walk is to like you know well I mean give spoilers without spoiling.
0: Yeah, I mean you made me think of so many things. Uh, you know, first of all, we tried to create a situation in which the hints are, are the hints are not diegetic, and we actually thought about making the hints like from Mary, mm-hmm. but I do think we created a story in which using the hints is diegetic, which is to say, when you say something like every Indiana Jones movie, which is this the this object of great power has been hidden behind this childish light reflection puzzle <laughs> it's like oh, that should not be cheatable because it's an in, it's an object of great power but with ours because she just has something she wants to tell me and she's saying please do this thing i made for you it isn't destroying the story for you to cheat the puzzles are there to be solved she yeah. wants them to be solved yeah. Um, you know, and something else that I just want to say off of that, my proudest kind of moment in this game is in volume one and everything in this game was a collaboration, but, um, in volume one, there are 16 love letters between Percy and Mary Shelley and Terry and I worked very, very hard. And a lot of books and biographies were read to try to create, uh, from a prose standpoint, something that would sound like Percy and Mary Shelley communicating with each other. Um, and also the history of their courtship. Volume one is entirely factual, Mm -hmm. so there's nothing fictional there. Um, And to create those 16 love letters was really hard. But beyond that, the 16 love letters are a puzzle, which you know at this point, they need to be put in chronological order, and they aren't dated. And the only way to do that is to read them incredibly closely. There's no cheat for that Mm -hmm. puzzle. And what's amazing is, you know, when people came to this game and playtesting, there are a lot of people who don't want to read. Mm -hmm. Puzzle people they're not there because they wanted to read. They're there because they wanted to solve puzzles. And you could see they would, when they first saw the 16 love letters, cause you kind of can ignore them for the first four hours of volume one. They were like, oh my God, that's so much text. Thank God I don't have to read that. For you. <laughs> like, eh, it's fine. It's just, I guess it's just like backstory for the characters. <laughs> and then that moment where they realize, oh dear God, not only do I have to read them, but I can't read them the way I usually read things in video games or tabletop games, which is like, oh yeah, yeah. I have to like follow every beat of this story and what's crazy is even if they hated it and there are people who hated it by the end of going through those 16 love letters they knew who Mary Shelley was, who Percy Shelley was, who Claire Claremont was, they knew why these two people fell in love and found each other, what they fought about, what they agreed on, mm-hmm. and they're so deeply engaged in the story more so than they ever would have been otherwise even if they didn't enjoy the experience of doing mm. that work. And that was that that was the goal there and it's beautiful to see. Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, but in order to do that, in order to get people to read 16 letters, they better be damn good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It'd better be good prose. If we're, gonna, if we're gonna ask our players, who these days can barely read a tweet, to engage with that amount of text, it had better be good. And I think that's another reason why it took three years to produce this thing is that, you know, this is written with all the care of an actual novel. And uh, you know, here we have a, a professional writer, to prevent, I mean, you know, this well, is what
0: we do. This yeah. is what we, we met writing. You know, it's our first love, and mm-hmm.
2: yeah. So that you know, it it has to be good because we're we're asking a lot of our players, so we have to reward them with something that's actually worth their time.
1: And right. I, I wanna I wanna make one more note about the the hint system. I think what's what's particularly good and elegant about it is like right from the start, uh, in each section, it's just like the first question that's answered is like, well, what am I supposed to do? So if you if you find yourself just like disoriented. And I would, we would often use those just to like a little bit of like checking our work. Right. It's like, Oh, did we get this? Oh oh yeah, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. We're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't lose that sense of forward momentum Mm -hmm. and the pros, the, you know, it, what's, what is great about those letters in particular is like you can you can really hear the characters' voices and there's there's consistency across it, and it it feels like you're you know snooping on people's stuff, yeah. uh, and and that that comes across really cleanly, and and that is a, a, a feat in and
2: of itself. Yes. And maybe that goes back to what you asked about earlier about like the level of detail and things. You know, oh yeah. I, 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 <laughs> Where do you think this question came from? <laughs> you know, I mean It wasn't just the wallpaper in here. Because it's it's not just the text that we pour. I mean, mm-hmm. every pixel of those documents has been combed over a thousand times. And
0: he times. means pixel, by the way, because in order to make this feel uh, diegetic, we needed it to be cursive, handwritten cursive. And like we've had, cursive is always hard for some people to read, but literally hours and hours going through every pixel of each letter to improve the fonts that we were using. Cause we had to use fonts. We couldn't afford to get somebody to do sort of each one, but those fonts were heavily messed with by Terry and our employee will for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know,
2: you know not to mention all of the, you know, the aging effects that we did and, and a lot of the, and the layouts, you know, we are we are designers and, you know, I work with a, I, I have a history as a graphic designer and I work with a graphic designer and we think a lot about layout and, and how information is presented on the page and readability and drawing the eye from place to place and colors and, and uh, you know, there is, there is not a document that, that didn't have a hundred hours in it yeah. by the time it was all said and
0: done. Also, one other thing you made me think of just to connect up is you know, the way that the first two volumes end, the third volume leads into kind of an epilogue, but all three volumes end with a knowledge-based revelation. And both volume one and volume two have a envelope that says conclusion or what is it? Called? Solution. Solution, solution. Yeah, yeah, solution. And it says open this when you know the answer to this question. And that journey, you know, I'm writing a little book right now about the greatest video game ever made, which is Outer Wilds. And, you know, that's... That's the dream. The dream is that you are searching for knowledge because nothing else is convincing. You can't get a magical object at the end of a game like this. You can't get a superpower. You can get knowledge. That's something that the player can receive, mm-hmm. um, and that's it's a powerful thing.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna take us in a in a in a, in a totally uh, different direction. Although maybe I can find some way to segue <laughs> around around the, <laughs> cons- around the concept of knowledge, which is. You've been here now for, for a number of years, and your you know, hatch as an entity is not just making games and publishing and, and hosting, you know, running, but uh, you played the building, and you guys played host and landlord to The Nest above us for, for quite some time, and now you you took over uh, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, mm-hmm. whenever it was exactly, uh, operating that i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what because we we did a whole thing where we were like oh the nest is going away it's ending we did like a whole episode upstairs and then like three <laughs> weeks later i was like oh uh never mind uh tell me Terry taking it over sorry you know i was like okay well, good, nice to know that but like wh- why why that decision why not why not like you know why take that a little a little bit of a burden on uh, operationally, although you, you just could be like, "Why burden?" When when it could have just been like, "Oh, get another get another tenant in, right? You know, move
2: something else." Oh, there. because the nest is so good. <laughs> Correct I, answer. Yeah. So <laughs> I mean, I am such a fan of what they did up there, and and I love, and it's and it's very much, it's very much in the world of what we're trying to explore. Certainly, it's not an escape room, and you know, we my. <laughs> My, uh, my sister played it shortly after we took it over, and she came out of it saying, that is the worst escape room I've ever done. And I, I looked at her and I said, but it's not an escape room. And then we realized that we had to figure out ways to make that clear to our audience members that you know it's very different from, uh, from a playing playing perspective than, than an escape room, but it is a wonderful story, well told. And I just wanted to see it go. More than that, I've always thought of this building and hoped this building would grow into not just a place where we do our escape rooms, but a campus where interesting people, where talented people, are coming together to experiment with telling stories in a live space. And you know, the Nest is a prime example of that. And as uh, as you as you know, but maybe the listeners don't, we have several other uh, collaborations that we that we have worked on and are working on that are similar. So, for example, uh, we are collaborating right now with Escape My Room from New Orleans. On a project up on the sixth floor called the X Society and uh, we are lo- we're constantly looking at other potential collaborations or, or opportunities to host other storytellers who we respect and see if we can get them into this space and, and really create a space where people come to to play with this kind of storytelling
1: on the horizon is th- the space we're sitting in right now, <laughs> uh, and and I think there, there's a little there's a little laughter, a little tension because like it's been it's been here you know it's been on the horizon for, for a hot minute, but this is the this is the home stretch here, yeah. and I guess uh, you know I think there, there's people who've been like you know because you you crowdfunded the, the project mm-hmm. and so some folks have been like you know waiting a lo- you know a while and and the, and the pandemic got in the way of everybody doing everything, mm-hmm. but I think there's a lot of people who do not have any clue as to what it is you're building here and we've we've talked we've talked a bit about you know, the, the the flow here but give us the pitch on on the ladder because we've talked about it as being not an escape game in the, in the traditional sense of an escape game of there being you know these these activities you're playing that there being a story but i i've had the privilege of seeing the scene zero of this and being <laughs> completely blown away By the scale of ambition in that one room alone, (laughs) which is just a simple, simple thing from a certain point of view, but the execution is at a my God, they gave the Imagineers a budget to do whatever they wanted, didn't they? type of vibe.
0: Uh, I'll start. There's plenty to say. Thank you for that. That was very (laughs) kind. Um, oh,
1: it's true! It's true. I was, I was in shock. I was like, "What are they doing?" This oh is man, yeah,
0: it's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, there's a lot to say. The sort of starting point, I think, and it's not as if it's the most important thing, but it kind of clarifies a lot of what we're trying to do is we kind of asked ourselves what a replayable escape room would look like. Mm. And we say this a lot, but from a financial perspective, it's not actually important to have a replayable escape room, which is to say that we don't have enough throughput in this industry such that you desperately need people to come back. But it matters for some other reasons, Uh, namely how entertaining is the experience? Can it entertain 12 people uh, at the same, can it actually entertain 12 people or do eight people mill around while four people do something? Mm. And I've if never had, been in a room like that. <laughs> and,
2: and if you had an amazing experience and want to bring back your friends or that one person in particular that you think would just love it, now you can
0: come back with that person
2: and experience it anew.
0: Exactly. So the, solution, uh, the solutions were many. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about a couple of them. Uh, I'll mention more. So we wanted to have a story that didn't reveal itself fully on one trip. And that eventually led us to the thing we talked about, which is the classic escape room puzzles in here are optional. And in order to get the full experience, you have to solve all of them. Mm-hmm. There is actually a bonus space that you do not access unless you complete all of those quite difficult optional puzzles. So that's one thing. A-
2: and countless story beats that happen along the way as you do uh, complete those various optional.
0: Puzzles. Right. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like yeah. Part two of this is um, you are making choices in every room. Uh, Those choices do affect the story you experience. They affect which ending you get. There are 10 endings to this experience. Um, So that's part two, is like taking a different path through the experience. And then the final one was there had to be so much content, and that content needed to be primarily not puzzles that you would want to come back. And the reason why is obvious, solvable puzzles, once you know the solution, you can just come and enter it. Mm -hmm. And what we want to say to people is like, that's even better because once you know how to solve the puzzles, you can spend more of your time playing the scored games. And by the way, the ending you get and choices you make are gated behind how high your score is. And the more unethically you play the story, your score is bonused. And the more ethically you play the story, your score is penalized. So it's very difficult to play this game ethically and also have your company succeed while doing all the other things you need to do. You're going to need to come back cuz this time I know all the puzzles, I can just put in the answer and I'll spend my time getting as high a score as I can. So that's kind of where we started in that regard mm-hmm. uh, to create replayability.
2: But I think also we wanted to continue experimenting with the kinds of stories that we can tell, you know. I mean, Lab Rat is a story, but it is a dumb story. <laughs> <laughs> sure is. And I have to say you know, the latter's not much more sophisticated, yeah. but it is more sophisticated in, in that there's a, there's certainly a lot more choice. There's certainly, um, uh, it, it contains a, you know, a, a deeply branching narrative. Um, and also, you know, it's hitting story beats very much the way that stories do and that the vast majority of escape rooms do not, and even a lot of immersive theater doesn't really do, because it's hard to do. It's hard to do when you can't control the protagonist.
0: We have, yeah. That's exactly it. We have a bit of, de- of a debate going about actually how possible it even is to tell uh, like sort of deep, meaningful stories in this format. Mother Frankenstein, for example, we have 20,000 words of text. Mm-hmm. That's how you get people engaged. In a room like this, in a 90-minute experience, right, and we imagine this game will be close to 90 minutes, You maybe have 12 minutes to just story people. The rest of the time, they need to be playing. 12 minutes is not a lot of time to tell a story, particularly when it's branching and so different things can happen. So, you know, we're still on the fence about whether it's possible to tell like a deep, meaningful story. I would argue that The Nest achieves it by not quite telling a story. The Nest is an emotional tone poem on a theme, and I think it's incredible. I wouldn't say it's actually telling a story qua story. Uh, Again, for people who haven't seen it, that's useless. Um, But the setup in here, I should say, because it's part and parcel of this, you are uh, playing as one character. So the first thing you do in this room is your group chooses an avatar from five choices. They affect the gameplay a little bit, but not much. Um, And you're all playing as one person. Very important already, right? Because if you're trying to tell a story, why are there eight people in here? Why are there 12 people in here? Who are these 12 people in these tiny little rooms? One person, you're all one person. So gestural move towards a character, right? Uh, and then the game tracks your 50-year career at this company. And you watch your character age. You watch your character choose to have a family or not. You watch those children age. We did a full uh, photo shoot with 37 actors. 27. 27, sorry. 37 mm. sounds better. I know. Uh, 27 <laughs> actors is the perfect cue. That's yeah, fine. but let's be clear.
2: 27 actors, hair, wigs, makeup, five decades. This was a big shoot. Yeah. Adds up. Gets a little expensive. Yeah. So. <laughs> expensive this project? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: sorry, sorry, sorry. So, scope big, right? And then I uh, this 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 idea I'm I'm really I'm mulling over this 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 idea of like, you know, is it possible to tell a story in the form or like what does that mean, right? And like you cuz you'll see you know you'll, you'll run around the folks who are at uh, you know ILM immersive right formerly ILMX lab mm-hmm. and so I like to, they like to talk in terms of story living right it's not storytelling it's 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 story living you're you're living inside the story and or or you know what's what is going on in immersive theater right you know how much of this is narrative how much of it is vibes okay. and where do the two <laughs> where do where do the two crossover and meet and like it, it's it's interesting that you've chosen like endow the whole team as a singular person. I actually just went to a, a show last two nights ago that like did the same thing. I think mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't invest a lot of time in creating that, the the moment to kind of bring you across as that person. They sort mm-hmm. of like, Oh, you, you're holding this. Now you all have this person. And then you got addressed at that, at that person going forward, huh. but they didn't quite they didn't quite nail it, right? And and you know, it's it's a small thing. It's a twenty-minute show. It's twenty bucks. It's like you know, it's a, it's it's a slight little thing. It's a, it's a haunt, right? You know, so maybe you don't have to like shoot the moon uh, sure. for for getting there. But that idea that we're going to endow either a single person or a group of people with an identity, and then let them get vignettes from that person's life. I think that that motion is into that idea of of, of story living, and. And then the, the narrative that comes through is as much those kind of emergent narratives that you get you know, when, when people start talking about Ludo narrative, consonants, Ludo narrative, dissonance, right? We're often talking about emergent narrative, right? It's not the story. It's your story. And there are things that are happening and there are other characters that have agency inside a world and maybe maybe they can run their plot or not. but you, the experiences you look back on, and the, the the tale you tell when you're done, that's what the story was. And there isn't a lot of, con- in some ways, there isn't a lot of control. Like you can build the sandbox, but not quite, you know, nail the exact arc.
0: I'm certainly fascinated by that. I mean, I feel like I'm a curmudgeon who hates everything, and I haven't been divisive yet in this interview. So Weird. I feel like I should get divisive now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm I am skeptical of a lot of the moves of immersive theater. Um, separate from enjoying it, just to be clear, you mm-hmm. can enjoy almost anything. Um, but like, if you didn't know Sleep No More was based on Macbeth, the story you would get is a bunch of unhappy modern dancers are living in a hotel in Chelsea. That's the story <laughs> of Sleep No More. Too many unhappy modern dancers in this building. Um, and that's like the best thing. That's like the, the grandest, you know, piece of design that, that's yet been made in that in that space. And I think the problem goes to what you said, which is, Stories are built around the protagonist, and you have no protagonist. You know, Lab Rat and Ladder are predicated around the antagonist. That's who you're seeing all the time, because yep. you're not seeing yourself. And we do the best job we can with it. But like Terry said, it's not an incredible job. It's not Faulkner. You know, people aren't going to be moved by this experience. Um, emergent storytelling is fascinating, but it's it's kind of, a, to me, it's a dangerous game to play. Because I've had some really great stories come out of a night at Chipotle, but it doesn't make it great art. Yeah. Like the good time you have, good on you. And, and I agree with you, by the way. I've had incredible times at immersive things. But like, it's a cop-out to kind of say like, come here and make your own incredible story occur with your being here. Like, you know, for us, that's, that's not quite the, the job. You know, and if you talk about something like, and then I'll shut up, I promise. But if you talk about video games, it gets different because they can put so much under the hood to make actual stories happen. We were just talking about how Baldur's Gate 3 is doing it right now. And the way they did it is they scripted like 55, Thousand stories. So, all the things you think you can do where you're feeling emergent and cool, they were just ready for you. Yeah. Straight up ready for you. They scripted it. Some of the Dwarf Fortress or something that goes deeper is actually emergent storytelling through algorithmic work. Right. But man, it'd be hard to do that in real space. Well, yeah. I
1: mean, Baldur's, what Baldur's is trying to do is replicate the experience of having, like, you know, a really prepared
0: DM. DM. Totally. Yeah. But at,
1: the, but at the same time, you know, it is, it is that approach of, like, oh, we're going to script every possibility that happens in the module. Whereas, a really good dm will right. just be like yeah
0: you can't right. mimic it can you yeah
1: we'll just like you know oh yeah okay we'll we'll, we'll go this way and not that way and you know that's why when when you start peppering in some of the, the the larp toolkit into a piece of immersive theater it's like your it gets a little more video gamey and that your run in you know uh, a speakeasy society show or your run at star cruiser right there is a module right there is a sequence of events that are going to occur no matter what in a large part because you may be the protagonist of your story but the the non-player characters are also protagonists of their story it gets a little bit more like life in that like there's multiple stories going on here and there's going to be conflicts at certain points and and you know in a larp the power balance is a little more on the side of the of the participants and in a piece of theater the power balance is more on the side of the performance just otherwise you get absolute chaos but it also means you can lift up to have a full set piece yeah. right mm-hmm. you can have kylo ren and ray doing special effects stuff because no two members of the audience don't have to be the ones to have the climactic lightsaber fight right right and by by having there be this this push pull between it you were you're able to you know you it may not necessarily be it may not necessarily be high art but then again i'd argue that you know 99% of cultural production Very fair. doesn't doesn't reach up to high art right yeah. you know for for every for every faulkner we have uh the entire contents of aoe going? right <laughs> you know like uh which is a lot of words right so um and and that's just humans can't help but make culture. Like yeah. that's, that's kind of what we do. That's, I think that's the thing I'm getting most excited about this form as a whole is that it's, it's another way of us
2: communicating and making yeah. culture. I mean, I, I love that people are doing things like that, like Galactic Star Cruiser and, and those kind of lived environments and lived stories where you you know you bring, you, 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 what, what you bring informs the story. I'm personally less interested in that from a professional standpoint because I really want to see how we can tell traditional formal stories, you know, the kinds of stories that have been around since Omer, et cetera, in this medium. I'm I'm fascinated by that. And it keeps it's the kind of thing that wake, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about still. Uh, and, and that's really kind of where my, my mind is every day.
1: Yeah. I mean so part of the puzzle here is like how do you endow the guest with the qualities of those characters how do you how do you get them to understand the ritual that they are enacting right you know you, you talk homeric and so there are there are certain things those characters do like could you without just handing someone a script get them to Take up and find themselves having done the motions. That's and, the question, and, and that realization. That's the question. Yeah, you know, it's, and it's, that's a that's a and that's a really fun puzzle, yeah. right? I mean, it's <laughs> it's, the, it's the big one. It's, yeah. it's
2: it's the meta puzzle that I think kind of my career has become about. Yeah, you know, and we're lucky that we come from the theater world, so we do have a lot of those theatrical tricks up our sleeves. Yeah. you know, we we know how to do a good sound and light cue. <laughs> we know how to draw your attention. We know how to point you to things. We know how to how to create beats that are you know. Are comprehensible. You, and even know, you even know how to
1: like how an actor prepares to be in a role and the moment before and setting that up right. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way in which it, it you're directing by inference as opposed to direct direction, right? And that's right. always like the best directors always manage to like lead you where they need you to go and not to say like, "Oh, could you just
2: say the line like this?" Mm-hmm. Right? But I think that comes back once again to that that obsession over detail. It's because we're asking so much out of you. We're we're asking you to step in and really be here and really be the main character of this story. I feel like I need to create the most believable world possible.
1: Well, and and the the activity thing I think plays into that. It, make, it that in this context it makes me think of one of my professors, uh, the 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 late Mohammed um, Khazar. You know, he would have us working. Uh, you know, just, just replicating simple work things, right? Just, like, going through the motions of, like, you're washing clothing, you're washing dishes, you're doing this, like, yeah. get this That's into it. the rhythm, yeah. you know, like, like you're, you're recreating those moments, you know, getting into that level of, of detail as a way of finding a way to embody yeah. the character. It's like, because ultimately what you do, it is called acting. Right, right. It is called acting, and you need to get them to act. And so, if you can get people to
2: take the action, then they are embodying the character. So it's interesting you say that we're here in the 1960s room of the ladder, and the the three uh, tasks that you're that you're doing in here, the things that you're earning points for, are answering phone calls on a giant switchboard, making coffee on a coffee making robot. And Filing obviously we've gamified these and made them fun, but they're absolutely mimetic of what one would actually be doing in an office mm-hmm. and we're trying to, to make it make it that, that anything you're doing at any, any given moment is of the world and, and kind of related to that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't have a I don't have a landing point for past that, but I think we find ourselves at, a, at an interesting spot uh, thinking about how this relationship between story and action and guests and protagonists and 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 you know where these gaps are as as we're, we're trying to to navigate this and and that's sort of like i think the puzzle everyone's trying to suss out and and the fact that you've built this starting with the question of what does replayability look like and even though you acknowledge that an escape game doesn't need that because of throughput there is very much in the broader sense of immersive i think for a lot of folks particularly as things get you know bigger throughputs how do you you know keep bringing people back and the approach you're taking right now which is there are activities but then there's like a, a deeper layer Might be part of that formula. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Well, I mean, there's an artistic and a commercial question there for what it's worth. You know, the, the, and I think they're made fuzzy a lot of the time. Uh, In other words, I think that the (laughs) that sounds like we live in a capitalist society. What I know. (laughs) Um, I think the commercial prerogative tends to lead the artistic prerogative in this regard, And, and so it's one of the reasons I wanted to say, like, the commercial prerogative for us did not require us to start thinking about replayability. Truly, it's just not a problem. LabRat is still mostly, it's not totally sold out, but it sells very, very well. We're six years out. I would assume the latter is going to sell very well for a good long time. So it wasn't commercial. I think that a lot of the larger immersive shows, um, it is very, very, very much commercial. Yeah, um, it has to be. Yeah, and I think artistically, that's actually problematic uh, overall, right? If uh, If a given work necessitates and you sort of want it to necessitate if people are coming back again, uh, multiple visits to absorb whatever it's trying to throw out there, probably something was, was lacking. Um, or you do, you know, we had dinner last night with Nick Moran of phantom peak. You do what he does, which is you re script the entire thing every three months, which is psychotic.
2: Ooh, that crazy. What a task.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, Having drinks with them tomorrow, and the thing I'm going to ask, uh, and we'll have asked by this point, is you know, okay, you've got a full cycle of year, you know, are you are you rearranging the deck, you know, the deck chairs again? Because <laughs> when that starts to say like you know, who do you think your audience is, and is yeah. it the people who've already come, and now you've got to impress that audience again? Like we can look to, you know, Evermore Park and see that they were advancing that story week by week. Mm-hmm. They had carved out seasons, but you know one of my friends went one time and he said like, I couldn't follow what was going on. I turned to somebody and said, oh yeah, well, so last week so-and-so did this, that other thing. And it was like, oh, so they were doing ghost town alive, but weekly as opposed to ghost town alive, which does it yearly.
0: Right. I mean, we didn't end up with, you know, Aristotelian rules for nothing, Um, which isn't to say you can't break them. And of course people are breaking them in incredible ways all the time. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't an accident when no. you when you start to move away right so again i'm going to be pretentious here right so the unities are what time place and people maybe just basically like time,
1: time and space are definitely two of the unities yeah process.
0: Aristotle basically yeah. Yeah. said like yeah. it shouldn't take place over more than a few days which of course is nonsense we have so many movies and plays we love that yeah. go for decades oh they were
1: really I mean and in I mean hell you get into like the the Moliere age right and everything's happening in real time right that, right exactly. you know Voltaire's us yeah. like all oh, like why are you breaking the unity is like this should be happening in real time and right. some of those I mean look I love Tartuffe Incredibly, particularly the I Richard Tartu- Wilbur tra- uh, translation. <laughs> I, I got to perform it in high school because nice. our, our director Tartu- was Tartu- crazy. No, I was real Uh My best, play- <laughs> my best friend played Tartuff. Uh nice. It was great. So uh, that was it was fun, fun cast, fun show, and you know, basically happens real time, right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 that's for an entire era. That was what people demanded. It's like that is what it is. Go outside of it. it's like mm. that's not real theater.
0: I don't yeah. think. I'd love to be proven wrong, and, and I'll even say this. I will be proven wrong. Eventually, yeah. I will be proven wrong. But I'm still going to say the obnoxious thing I'm going to say, which is I don't know how you do good storytelling on this scale. It's too much content. I wish we would stop using that word because it's a gross, gross word for what we all do. Yes, But it's more applicable when you're creating seasons worth of content. You can't write, you know, uh, Nick's a genius. I'm sure he's not writing 16 brilliant, heart-wrenching plot lines every three months. Nobody could do that. Yeah. And I don't even think he's he's trying. He's got other things to worry about. And what he's doing there, by the way, is incredible. I'm blown away. And like you said, there's only so much room for Faulkner. The rest of you know, the rest of time we need our t- things that just are a great time and keep us engaged and entertained. But I don't know how you tell incredible, powerful stories at that scale. I don't I don't know. I don't know yeah. how you do it. Someone someone will do it eventually. Can't wait.
1: <laughs> someone will do it eventually. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much. It's this a was a huge pleasure. This is so very much. enjoyable.
0: So absolutely. Thank you. What is this?
1: once again i want to thank terry and tommy for being our guests on the show this week for letting us come down to hatch to sit on the set of the ladder which i am so looking forward to playing i know i know a lot of folks are looking forward to playing it and uh it is it is closer than it's ever been i mean i guess technically the second like you write a- we write a word on a blank sheet of paper, something's closer than it was uh to being completed than it was before, but there this is this thing is like really well on its way uh yeah shuttling down towards uh I, I think probably like the the last couple of months of of construction uh if that possibly even weeks uh really solid state that it's in right now uh and just gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. There's some gags in there that I've already been privy to that I just wow. Wow. Um anyway, uh that's there's there there's there's that. There's all that. Also, just a pro tip, uh, to stay stay in the hatch world for a second. If you're down around hatch um a little earlier in the day. Because it's kind of uh, you know, and Terry is noting like you know, like the neighborhood. There's not a lot in the neighborhood. It's a little bit of a of a what we would call a food desert, uh, for instance, which is like an actual urban problem. Uh, except, and I think with my stomach, so I, I'm I'm a wookie. Um, uh, I know I, I I speak basics so well most of the time, uh, but you should hear this podcast in the original Shira look. Uh, but you have to turn the volume down. Um, <laughs> I'm on one today, guys. I really am. Uh, I'll explain why in a second. Uh, Anyway, Cafe Surfas and Surfas the the um, the chef supply store is like Caddy Quarter from them. Something that because I usually go down there at night, I did not realize that Surfas had moved over there a couple of years ago. This was a spot that was in Culver City. uh, That if you're Anywhere on the foodie spectrum is just this absolute delight, like playpen to go into. Because there's like industrial level kitchen equipment, and then like this, like you know, there's 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 the supermarket. Well, the supermarket. There's the market part of it where you can just find just you know like bulk Valrhona chocolate, ready to roll, or incredibly specific ingredients that you wouldn't find anywhere else across multiple cuisines. So what I'm saying is, is that if you're making a plan to go to the nest, you're making a plan to go to Labrad. maybe look up Us and I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, and see, see what time they're open when you want to go so that you can book and also see what time the cafe, because I mentioned the cafe part, is open. The cafe closes a little earlier. But you, you can make a fun little a fun little trip. Zervos is not huge. It's not like the size of an Ikea. It's definitely smaller than it used to be, or smaller than the Culver City one. Maybe this Culver City one's still there, but I don't think it is. Uh, a lot of development in Culver City. Um, make, make, make the little trip. Wow yourself. Uh, and uh, again, delights delights and delightful. So uh, (laughs) opening this show is definitely a bit goofier than normal because as you can tell, I'm in a good mood. Um, I'm not always in a good mood. I think a lot of you can tell when I'm not in a good mood. Uh, But definitely when I'm in a really good mood, I get really playful. Right. And uh, that's that's where I am this week. Uh, because uh, we the semester started the year started up at Calarts. arts uh, i have joined the theater faculty uh, in the experience design division of the theater faculty uh, and i'm i'm doing a class called centering the audience which is about um, immersive experiences it's about the process of centering the audience uh, it is both uh, practical in that the students will be making projects, and I will be critiquing them uh, in order to help them refine their their projects and their process. Uh, and it's uh, there's there's going to be some history and whatnot in it. Um, I'm excited. I'm very nervous about it. I'm also learning. <laughs> all the ins and outs of being like someone teaching college. And there's so many layers to that. Oh, that's an experience in itself. I'm also getting a chance to explore a new space, uh, which I just, I, I'm a nerd for that. Like I really, I love nothing more than being dropped in somewhere and just being like, how does this building work? Like, where are things like, you know, Ooh, what's this nook over here? You know, find me a fun hallway. Um, always have been that way. It probably explains why I'm into all of this shit. Um, and there was uh Wednesday was the orientation day for the theater department, uh, both uh, a faculty meeting and then a couple of meetings with the students and the faculty. And I am just so impressed by these people I get to work with. And it's been a long time a really long time since I've been part of a community where I'm, I'm not the organizer of it. I'm, I'm not in charge, um, in some capacity. Eh, No, I'm in some capacity. I'm not in charge. I'm not responsible. I can just show up. I, I can't even be responsible. Like I'm, I'm like adjunct. Like I, I, I can't, go like oh i'll be on academic council i can't i can't get myself into trouble that way because like i'm not a full-time employee so i'm just like i'm here for the ride and i feel just and also like you're on you're on college students so like their, their lives are beginning their journeys are beginning you know like the adventure is real um and so just being in that environment being with these these like really clever smart and 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 the 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 talks that were given to the students, they, it felt like being in like theater church and, and it wasn't about, it wasn't about like, you know, technical this or the form or your careers. It was about the relation of the work to the world and the call that, that theater artists have to have a role in the world and to operate with compassion and to meet the challenges we have culturally in the moment that we're in. And it just felt so incredible. And I feel inspired again. And I feel like really this is going to be, uh, I don't want to put too much onto it. Uh, one, the one thing I posted on blue sky was yeah, just after the first day, I was like, "I, I now know why therapists have therapists, and and what's good about that, because uh, I, I sort of feel something akin, right? Like I get to be part of something, um, that's, that's, that mean I'm already part of something that's bigger than me, but I get to be part of something else that's bigger than me, and it it doesn't rely upon <laughs> my sanity." In quite the way that this sometimes relies upon my sanity. And after the last few years, these just incredibly hard years, um, to be somewhere where that is true and to be somewhere where, where it's acknowledged the last few years are really incredibly hard. Um, so don't be surprised if uh, I don't get some more CalArts tales out of this. Don't be surprised if I don't start dragging some colleagues on the show. Uh, maybe even really soon. There's a there's a eco festival that's happening on the campus in Valencia. There's there's some big domes being built uh, on the soccer field right by the parking lot, and that's going to be running from September 15th through the 24th. Uh, and there's going to be some experiential uh, work as part of that uh, that's that, uh, exploring uh, climate futures. Uh, and so so definitely really really interesting. And uh, and and maybe just maybe I'll, I'll find a way to snag. Uh, some of the folks involved do not take that to the bank, because uh, let me tell you, everyone's really busy over there, and bureaucratic processes are bureaucratic processes. So um, this this will be uh, the the well, no, like we'll probably get more Cal tales over the course of the um, of the semester, not not out of school tales, as it were. Um, I'm not gonna come here and be like, "Oh, the administration today." No, you won't. You won't get any of that on here. I'd get in so much trouble if I did something like that. And also, so right now, as of this moment, gloriously, I I have none of those stories. I'm just having a really good experience, and I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. All right. Um, there is so much happening this month. Spooky season's kicking off. I'm starting this new gig. Um we're securing the future as best we can. Uh, I have been summoned to give uh, a, a give a key, keynote talk. I get so embarrassed. I'm I'm one of the keynote speakers at uh, the Lucid uh, the the Lucid Immersive Summit in Singapore. Uh, Melinda Lau works for Lucid uh, Lucid Immersive as put together along with her colleagues. Uh, Melinda Lau of Whisper Lodge, uh, dear friend of the show. Uh, and uh, put together a really incredible lineup. Vince Kadelbeck's going to be there. A couple of folks from Punch Drunk are going to be there. Uh, Someone from Team Lab. Um, The the folks from and so forth in Singapore, which I'm really excited to get to go see. And so just this really, again, you know, kind of bizarro world life where, you know, I'm on the show, on the internet, I'm begging for change to make this all work, and then someone goes like, oh, hey, we're going to fly you out to, to, you know, the other part of the world, come be with us, and I'm like, okay, yes, Um, which, uh, you know, if it wasn't for all of you supporting this, I wouldn't be able to get to say yes to that sort of stuff because I'd be like, oh, I can't get out of my job at Target. Uh, you know, oh no, my barista shift won't let me out. I can't, I can't go to Singapore this week because, uh, it's pumpkin spice season. Um, not joking. You, you make this possible. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, being able to say yes to the CalArts job. Um, (laughs) our society is really weird. I don't, I don't know how we got this far, y'all. I really don't um it doesn't make any sense to me anymore in so many ways uh how is this working <laughs> are we sure it's not prom all right Uh big shout out to everybody who is at shawano O'Loughlin's uh retreat this week uh the please do vibe uh shout outs to ali shout outs to roby and some other of the kids out in the immersiveverse who i recognize in Siobhan's. <laughs> instagram videos hope you're all having a good time out there in new york uh and um yeah uh there's a there's a chance hey if if any of you know any creators in singapore right or if any of you want uh to our creators uh and, and and you know if getting to singapore is not a hassle for you it turns out as of like last night i have like a comp or two so, um, I'll put the link in the show notes. I probably just opened up a can of worms. I, 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 I'm not, and maybe if, if I did, I'll have to like figure out some way to do it, but I, I don't know. I just don't know. And this is also the people who listen all the way to the end of the, the Noah rant section, which is like now, what is this? Like 10, almost 15 minutes. Wow. Jeez. Well, I know one thing. I won't have any problem coming with lectures for the class. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I got some comps, y'all. So, um, but like, uh, I will. I'll tell you this much: I will not give the comp to someone who is like, "Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna drop everything uh, to fly uh, across the planet uh, to 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 go to this conference." Um, you need to be closer to there or you, you need to like already be doing stuff in Singapore. Uh, so I'd rather have you refer a friend who's over there or near there. Um, Cause it ain't, it ain't easy. It's long trip, long trip, long trip. The associate producer of no proscenium is Parker Sella. Music for No Persenium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. The No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, uh, and spun in several different directions at any given time by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show.